Welcome to the Road to Reinvention podcast. I'm your host, Sherelle Dorsey, tech founder, author, speaker, and networking connoisseur. After several successful businesses and what many would consider a life well-lived, I found myself struggling after earning all of my gold stars to answer the simple question of what's next. Once you've done everything you said you would do and then some, do you create just another goal? Do you hang it up? Do you pivot and show up in a new space? Do you do something you're passionate about and damn proud of? Or do you once and for all decide to put that kind of energy into your personal life and put the work aside? I don't know yet, but I have tons of friends and colleagues and people I admire that have tracked this same journey who will be joining us this season to bear it all. How they answer the question that left them puzzled after earning the highest of highs. Join me in tuning in to hear from those who learn to navigate their own road to reinvention. Welcome back to another episode of The Road to Reinvention. My guest today is none other than Jessica Santana. She's the co-founder and CEO of America on Tech, a nonprofit organization on a mission to prepare the next generation of technology leaders in order to decrease the economic and racial wealth gap in underestimated communities. Jessica has worked as a technology consultant for some of the world's largest brands, has been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and New York's 40 Under 40 Rising Stars list. And in 2020, City and State named her a Brooklyn hero for her work in the community during COVID-19. She has presented and spoken to over 100 different audiences that include South by Southwest EDU, TechCrunch, Google for Entrepreneurs, The White House, Thomson Reuters, and Bloomberg. And today, we have the honor and the privilege of having her join us for this episode. Jessica, I'm so glad that you came on the podcast. You are like literally my favorite person. Aww, you're literally <laughs> like one of my favorite people in the world. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's dive into this conversation. All right, Jess, I feel like I have interviewed you so many times. I know your story <laughs> in so many iterations. I think we all see this like incredible founder, CEO. You run an incredible organization called America on Tech. Um, previously, New York on Tech. And there was a transition and a bit of a reinvention spurred by the pandemic. But before you became this like massive, incredible leader of how we're training up the workforce of the future, especially in black and brown communities, you were a young girl from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I, I just really love your story. So I want you to dive into your story, but also like how you reinvented that story to get you onto the trajectory you are on today? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's such a good question, Sherelle. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think that people don't realize, like, I still see myself very much as that young girl. So, like, regardless of, like, awards and titles and things that people mm. have seen, like, I always have seen myself as, like, just from Brooklyn. And so when I think about um, the concept of reinvention, especially as I was preparing for this interview, I was asking myself, like, what has reinvention looked like for me, knowing that I still very much consider myself like that little five-year-old on the block playing double dutch with her <laughs> homegirls, right? 
Um, but, you know, my story, I always say it begins with my parents. You know, they migrated here from Puerto Rico in the 1950s and 60s. And really, they envisioned being able to provide our family, you know, access to things that the island just didn't have access to. Mm -hmm. um, and this was during a really big migration of Puerto Ricans, you know, from the island to New York City. And, you know, I think what they didn't realize is that while they saw like America as a land of opportunity, that um, America is also just very unkind to people of color and those that come from immigrant experiences. And so, you know, I would very much say that their dreams of, um, you know, being able to build generational wealth for our family and giving our, you know, family access to things that they didn't think they could have access to on the island um, really was deferred like a raisin in the sun. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, you know, that book over and over again when I was in high school because the story just resonated with me so much about people who, you know, have this dream and they're fighting for it and fighting for it over and over again. And yet they find themselves in this cycle of not ever being able to achieve it. And um, I remember at some point, when I was young saying like, I'm going to be the person who like gives my family the opportunity to say, I um, am proud of what Jessica did for the generations that came after her um, and give my family like the Santana credibility, the same ways in which the Rockefellers, you know, have. And yeah. so it really starts with my family, my story. And then obviously I grew up in the East New York Brownsville section of Brooklyn. Um, I grew up in Pink House Project specifically. And what you learn about, you know, our communities is that genius is equally distributed and opportunity is not. I still mm. say like in my adulthood, like that the smartest and most talented people I've ever met were definitely like my people on the block. Yeah, um, yeah. And the only thing that separated them from anyone else that I've encountered in my professional journey was opportunity um, and just access to information and make good decisions about where you can take your life. And so um, I think many of those experiences I've taken with me along my journey as time has passed. And I've realized that um, by default of becoming the person that I was looking for when I was young, I have now become um, the woman that I hope that other little Puerto Rican girls mm. growing up in Brooklyn can look up to and say, I can do that too. That is so incredible. And I love that your story and your origins isn't something that you've ever talked about with a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's been this shift in our narratives and we've been able to talk about where we come from, the people we come from, who poured into us. They may not have had college degrees. Mm -hmm. may not, they may not have had a bunch of money, yes. but they gave us pieces of themselves that gave us the, the, the strength and the idea that we could even go above and beyond what they did. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always loved hearing that story because it's so honoring. Mm -hmm. It's so honoring the way in which you always use language um, to talk about being from the projects, the folks that you met and grew up with mm -hmm. who were just as worthy and just as valuable. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to carry that with you throughout your journey is so reflective in the work that you're doing today, which of course we're going to talk about, but 
what I what I loved also about your story is that that American dream that your family had when they came over, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, you did get to live that. Mm-hmm. You went to college, mm-hmm. you know, can you talk about that journey? Yeah. And now this was almost like your invention period, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you got to college, you did all the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because a lot of people will say like, um, well, just like your family's dream was achieved through you, but it's so important to provide context that it, that it only has been me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many other people in my family that just have not been able to break that cycle for many reasons. You know, some of this has to do with the crack ec- epidemic. Some of this has yeah, to do same. with, you know, gun violence and um, the ways in which uh, the, you know, the prison to the school to prison pipeline manifests in places like Brooklyn. And so it's um, it's interesting because I I think about like what that invention period was like and or that reinvention period was like and um i would say the first step to that reinvention was getting access to higher education um you know you really don't know that you grow up poor until you have something else that you can compare it to right yeah i was like oh wow like you guys read all these different books and all of you guys read it like it was like i remember when i was in my first like writing class my first english class in college I was like, how did you all read all of these things going being from all of these different places and like have that kind of alignment? And yet some way, somehow those books didn't even filter into my classroom. Maybe like the only book I remember ever filtering back, filtering, filtering into my classroom was like Oedipus. Yeah, like that was like yes. the only one that, and finally when we started talking about it, I was like, oh wow, look, a point of commonality. Right. But I think like um, that, that, uh, that thing that people don't talk about when it comes to like trying to reinvent yourself is that it's a painful process. Like it did not feel good to be um, in a classroom full of people who knew things and had access to things that this was the first time I was ever hearing about. Mm-hmm. And when I thought about like not having access to those things, like the first thing that came to mind to me was like, well, why, how did you all get on the same page? about these are the things you're supposed to have as like foundational right. readings. Um, and what was it that like left me out of that narrative? Yeah. And then when you start to piece things together about the ways in which poverty and systemic racism, the way education is funded, and you are this young girl in this predominantly white institution and people are um, you know, feeding you ideas about like what was supposed to be your life and then nothing up until that point mirrored anything that they Mm -hmm. thought that I lived, um, I had big questions about like, why do I feel like I'm the exception to this rule about like who gets about who gets access to these kinds of schools and universities and who gets access to private education. Um, And so the first thing I'll say is like reinvention was painful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that from that pain, there was like a tremendous chip on my shoulder to make sure that I was always a positive representation for my people on campus, for when I went back to my community, that people understood that you can be from pink houses, you can be from Brooklyn, and you can also go um, to Syracuse. And then time progressed and time progressed. And then I realized like, I'm not really reinventing myself. What I'm really showing people is that you can have a range Mm. Um, and you don't have to choose between 
who you were and where you want to go or who you were and where you want to be or who you are, who you fundamentally um, feel is reflective of like your values, you know, because a lot of times people will expect um, you to make decisions that don't always align with who you are Mm -hmm. um, just to say that like you have conformed to a societal norm of some sort. But um, for me, like I never wanted to choose between where I was from and, you know, where I was trying to go. I wanted to make sure that I knew what, you know, what I needed to do to um, uh, bring both of those things together. And, you know, pain, like I said, turned into a chip on my shoulder. Then it turned into, oh, like I can be both. I can be, you know, someone who, is a professional and also be, you know, in the club, pop a bottles with my friends, and there's nothing Jessica wrong with from that. the block. Jessica <laughs> from, the from the job, from the block. Um, so I think that was the first step was higher education. Then it was corporate America. Then it was getting into tech. Mm-hmm. Then it was, you know, starting a national organization. And then I think now um, most of my transformation is not even about like professional aspirations. It's more about like you know, who I am and who I want to become as a person and not so much um, tied to achievement at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Um, Sometimes I think a lot about how my geographic location, like moving and like leaving my hometown created so much opportunity and exposure for me. I think both in positive and some not so positive ways. Um, you had referenced Lorraine Hansberry, Raising in the Sun, and the poem, uh, Langston Hughes, Raising in the Sun, and the literature, you know, that mm-hmm. you are fed, especially as a person of color, like you're going to read person of color authors, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to schools with predominantly folks of color, like the curriculum may be different. And then you go into spaces, elite spaces, mm-hmm. where the classics are the norm, mm-hmm. right? And if you haven't read the classics, like you're not keeping up with the conversation mm-hmm. and how isolating it can feel when maybe you're the top of your class, right? Mm-hmm. In high school. And now you're going into a space where you're like, I don't know nothing about nothing. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm expected to survive and thrive in these environments that I am learning the language for the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm learning the behaviors. I'm learning the etiquette for the very first time. Mm-hmm. At any point in your journey, as you're walking through this, especially as a young person, especially when you know that, I don't know if it was, this was like, what, what it was like for you in college, but like I had, you know, some some classmates who were going to go summer, you know, in Spain or w- wherever they were going. And I'm, and you know, for me, it was like, I got to get this job because mm-hmm. I got to mm-hmm. help pay tuition for sure. or whatever it is. And so at any point in time in that journey, as you were deciding or saying, I don't have to make a choice, but where are those times, that tension of, I fundamentally like have to shape some sort of narrative that makes other people feel comfortable so that Mm -hmm. I can feel comfortable so that I can Mm -hmm. continue to do my work as I'm figuring things out. Like, I'm just curious about what that felt like for you at that time. Yeah, for sure. So I didn't get to the, um, to the place of like, oh, I don't need to choose until like after college. I think Mm -hmm. I kept like, um, I kept saying it to myself, but I was still, you know, making compromises along the way that at some point I was like the burden of having to be someone that I am not feels all encompassing. And now I'm choosing to be 
who I am um, mm-hmm. and whatever, you know, ramifications or consequences come from that, then I'm okay with it. Cause I'm actually physically exhausted of the idea of code switching all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were many moments, you know, in my journey where that happened, you know, when I went to study abroad in Hong Kong in 2009, there was an opportunity to either do an independent study where you travel to different countries and you would get to experience, you know, Asia in such a beautiful way and then you can write about your learnings or you can do an internship and stay local in Hong Kong and not travel. And what do you think I did? You said local and, and I didn't stayed, travel. I, exactly. <laughs> I stayed local. I didn't travel mm. because in my mind, that internship in Hong Kong was going to make me more competitive for the job placement that I needed to yeah. make sure that I accomplished in the next year and a half after graduation. Right. And looking back at that time, I wish someone would have said just like, you are never going to do this again. Like, go ahead and give yourself permission to experience the world. Mm. Um, But I was operating from such a place of like, no, I need to, you know, do uh, the thing that everyone expects me to do to be Mm -hmm. more competitive in the workplace um, that I really didn't give myself the permission to really, you know, travel and see what that side of the world looked like. And now thinking about it, I don't regret it, but I do ask myself like what it would have looked like if someone would have poured into me that I had the option to just be free in that way. There were other moments too, you know, when I started my career in corporate America, like a lot of people be like, just like this curly hair stuff is not going to work. So for a year and a half, I was like straightening my hair every day, every day. And I'm just like, I hate it here. And then I was like in tech consulting. So I would like literally be suited and brooded. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm like literally literally wearing black and navy blue and gray all the time. And I was like, this is not me. Yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, there were many times where that tension came up. And I think that in those moments, um, I really relied on my relationship with God to ask him, like, listen, you know, something here is not mathing. You know, I feel really misaligned mm. and I need for your, you know, I need for your um, covering to provide me the guidance in my next step because something here is not clicking. And yeah. I think that that tension, right, is what led to me um, creating America on tech from a place of pain because I wanted so many people to have access to, you know, the thing that I got access to, which was a job in tech. And so in my mind, the way that I was going to do that was to train as many people as possible to start working with me. Um, Mm -hmm. Did that, did that feel like the right strategy at the time? Yes. Knowing what I know now about like talent and upskilling, I think that that is, uh, that was like an interesting approach to yeah. just be like, I'm going to train everybody and now they're going to get a job in tech. Because I plus B equals the, C and that like, yeah, yeah, like in a perfect world, that's yeah. exactly what yeah. it is. And then you start to peel back the layers and you realize, okay, there are other barriers that yeah. like have to be addressed. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, the tension always existed, but I think once I realized like you are tired of like carrying the burden of having to be two different people, mm. you know, just give yourself permission to be yourself and hey, whoever's gonna like mess with it is gonna mess with it and whoever's yeah. not can yeah. just jump off jump off the cliff. Jump off the cliff. <laughs> like yes, one extreme to the next. But like it, it almost sounds like that reinvention was still a return to yourself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was still a return to like your core values to 
all of who you are, even all of who you're not. And I love, I love that you're like, I work in tech, six figure salary. I have become the dream that my family, you know, built and moved and sacrificed for it to some, to some respect. And now I'm going to leave this great cushy job mm-hmm. and these suits that I don't want to wear. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I am going to provide some access and opportunities, maybe start it off a little messy, but that's like what entrepreneurship is, right? Mm-hmm. Like you kind of start messy, you start with the, with the basics and then it continues to expand and say, Hey, I'm going to pair high school students with training education, starting in New York, right? Cause we were New York on tech and then we had this like reinvention of everything, but starting with these incredible high school students who want to be in tech, want to go into tech and get them internships mm-hmm. um, so that they can get that exposure. And talk to me a little bit about how you made the decision to say, it is time for me to go full throttle on this mission and this purpose. And I'm sure those conversations with God of, hey, there's got to be more. Mm-hmm. And deciding that this is not just deciding that this is your more, but then deciding to take that leap of faith mm-hmm. to pursue it. Yeah. Um I will say that it's always interesting how people see who you are before you see who you are. You mm. know, my co-founder and I, when we started, it was Brooklyn on tech first, then New York. Then oh, America. I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah. But she was like, started, I was Brooklyn to my core. I was representing, <laughs> I was representing Brooklyn so hard. But it. it's interesting when we started Brooklyn on tech, um, you know, the goal was never to build a national organization. Like we never even thought about taking a nonprofit full time because no one, no one that we knew ever did that. Yeah. Um, and we were just like, we can raise money because we have a network of people. We can use that mm-hmm. money to build a curriculum and train kids. And that's it. And that's like what we'll do yeah. on the weekends because this is our passion project. You're like 20 people, 20 kids. It was like, just 20 That's how we're going to change the world. That's right. how we're going to change the world. And so um, thinking about like 2014 and, you know, what we did in the curriculum we were building and the relationships we were building, um, it's funny because we started attracting resources our way without having to like actually go and get resources, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we had a program one day, we had a friend of ours who had a connection to BET and they wrote an article about Brooklyn on tech. And that article went viral. The CTO of the company that I worked for saw the article he put it on the intranet and was like, oh, look, two Accenture, you know, um, uh, consultants are like featured on BET. And we thought we were about to get fired. We were like, oh, my God. It looked because they could describe this as entrepreneurs and all this right. stuff. And, and they were like, <laughs> wait. And these guys, I was like, oh, no. And so I was convinced in that moment. I was just like, at some point, like, this is going to. This is going to come back in some kind of way. And it Mm. did. I'll tell you that in a second. But, um, you know, we got really scared, but we continued to do the thing because, you know, that was our bread and butter. We weren't making money from Brooklyn on tech. We had no intention of doing that at that time. Y'all are just serving. Just serving. Mm -hmm. And then after that BET article went viral, 
Um, our uh, friend, John Jackson, who you mm-hmm. also know, he um, put us in contact with an accelerator called Camelback Ventures. Mm-hmm. And Camelback Ventures was like, what you're doing is so amazing. We've been looking for people just like you who are people of color leading education ventures. You know, here's this $50,000. One of you have to take it full time. One of you have to take it full time. And so this concept of entrepreneurship got um, introduced to me. And I was just like, $50,000? Take it full time. What does that mean? I don't. I what like, am I supposed what, to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? But then I realized, like, yo, just bet on yourself, Jess. Mm. Like, whoever, who from your community and who from your from where you're from will ever have someone say, "Here's fifty thousand dollars. Invest in your dream. Invest in your community." Mm. And I think, um, you know, I talked to my co-founder and I about it, and I was like, you know, fifty k is really not a lot. Yeah. And he was just like, well, what you want to do? And I was just like, I think I'm just going to do it. And he ended up leaving um, a little bit later after me. But, you know, it's just this concept of like, you know, people seeing who you are before you are able to see who you are. Mm -hmm. And I always thank Camelback Ventures for seeing the potential of what we were trying to build, because at that time we didn't even have like a vision for where we could take this beyond Brooklyn. Um, And it wasn't until you know, Camelback came and the BT article came and then all these people started contacting us. And then we had students from New Jersey applying to the program and other places, you know, in, even outside of the five boroughs where we were like, there is something here that we are not grasping as of yet that is truly in alignment with our calling and our purpose. And we have to listen to the things that are happening around us to really justify why we need to go beyond the scope of what we initially wanted, which was just a pilot program of 20 students in Brooklyn. Um, And the reinvention process has happened year over year over year. And now Mm -hmm. we've been doing this work for nine years. And there's been so many things that we've not like, learned along the way and what we thought this could be in 2014 is not what this has become um but i'm just incredibly grateful for the opportunity to have people around you that speak life into you um Mm. and really give you platforms when you don't even know why you deserve them or want to invest in your ideas when you don't even really have the full plan Mm -hmm. fleshed (laughs) the full plan just out there like okay we're gonna do it we're gonna do it (laughs) Um, and so I think that's what that journey was like. And I just thinking back on it, I'm just like, wow, like I really feel that my purpose on this earth is to build systems for the kingdom. And it's become clearer and clearer the more time my time with American Tech has, mm-hmm. has um, continued. And you all transitioned into America on Tech um, as like the pandemic completely transformed mm-hmm. our worlds mm-hmm. overall. And it was interesting to see and to watch how the nature of the programming changed and transitioned and, and being able to even bring an intern on to some of the work that I was doing, um, but to see the expansion completely. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that? Because you all are serving kids across this country in various markets. I remember you moving to LA and like now Miami, but just the idea that we just thought we was doing a lot with 20 kids in Brooklyn Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. now thousands of students and their families to an extent um, being, being served. But that moment of the world has changed completely in the blink of an eye. And now we have to 
make our pivots mm-hmm. to meet that demand. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we, so we rebranded to America on Tech in October of 2019 mm. because in August of 2019, we kicked off a pilot in Los Angeles with 150 students. And um, the goal, you know, for August and the whole 2019 to 2020 school year was to test um, what our program could look like outside of um, New York City. We ended up getting a um, a pro bono pro bono mm-hmm. feasibility study done by Accenture, who was my former employer, um, to determine like where does an American where does a New York on tech program. Um, you know, where could it actually exist outside of the realm of New York? And so through a set of criteria, they come up with five cities and we ended up choosing LA um, and for various reasons, because mm-hmm. of the need, the access to tech, the access to digital, Hollywood, um, our current connections, like we centralized, our power was mostly centralized there. So going to LA and kicking off that pilot um, was prior to the pandemic, but it's just so interesting that we became a national organization right before we were required mm, to be right. one. So that uh, transition had already happened, which was fortuitous. And yes. like, I think, I think so much, and I, I love to go back to this because it is the questioning. It is the questioning of like, okay, guy, you, this is the check for $50,000 to go mm-hmm. full time. And like, mm-hmm. you sure you want me to leave my job for mm-hmm. this? And now like, the opportunity to mm-hmm. expand and then to have had so many so much of that transition have happened before the world completely changed course. Yeah, for sure. And I always, you know, my co-founder and I, we always go back and forth because we're like, I can't believe that we became American tech before before we were actually required yeah. to be. And um, you know, when 2020 hit, it was um it was a very difficult time for our organization, but it was also a very difficult time for me as a leader mm. um, because while I was trying to save my community, I also am a member of it, right? So a lot of the things that were going on with black and brown people, I was not um, immune you know, to yeah. those things. Like I was fighting for my kids in my program, but I was also very much fighting for my own life um, and the lives of the people that I most love and care about. Yeah. And so I found myself in a very, very interesting place, but I realized that throughout that time, I can channel a lot of my feelings about what was going on in the world into a positive um, into a positive outlet, which was America on Tech at the time. And it's just so interesting because while there was so much going on in our society and while I felt that the entire world around us was burning, I found that it gave me the energy that I needed to actually step into my power and say, like, we can be an organization that is not just serving students in New York. So it was as if the pandemic gave us permission to accomplish an already set plan that we also still were not sure of. Um, And to see like, you know, the transformation over time from being a local org to now being a national one, I do believe that like, um, there are moments in your life that require you to rise to an occasion. Yep, the transition, but also it being such a challenging time for you as well. as a leader because you're serving this community you're from this community there's so many other and i don't think people understand this when you are 
a CEO, you're doing all this great work, people want you on stages, but there's some realness when you actually are part of the demographic that you're serving. Mm -hmm. And earlier, um, you spoke about how as much as you've had all of this opportunity exposure and you think about some family members that have still stayed stuck. Mm -hmm. And that hit me so much because I remember I was preparing for graduation mm. at Columbia and I was getting my letters in the mail from my brother in prison mm. who gets out maybe in 2025. Mm -hmm. And the crazy dichotomy that so many of us have in walking in these rooms and in these stages and having access in a way that I don't think my grandparents could have ever imagined or my great grandparents, um, even, you know, my mom, my family sometimes and having to manage that reality, right? When a Brown person is killed in America by a police officer and you still got to go into work and give a presentation and your heart is broken mm -hmm. or you're worried about your, your uncle, your cousin, your brother walking in the world and being seen as a threat by somebody mm -hmm. and then serving families and children who having an internship, a paid internship could have meant the difference between having your lights on or food in the fridge for the summer mm -hmm. and knowing what that actually feels like. Mm -hmm. And I think actually I had that conversation with John Jackson, mm. you know, cause I was like, it, had messaged him. I was like, you know, I'm picking up a degree from an institution that like at some point folks that look like me would have never even been accepted into. Mm -hmm. And I first have to finish writing this letter to my brother and send it to his cell, his mm -hmm. jail cell. Mm -hmm. And that's so heavy. Mm -hmm. As you're processing and still leading and coming to meet the need, like, how did you, how did you manage that? Like, I remember you being in LA. I remember you getting this like cute little dog. Um, <laughs> but I can imagine how lonely that feels because your family's there, but like, they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And then the rooms that you're in, like, how are they supposed to understand? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you manage that in isolation? Oh, man. I feel like, um, what people don't didn't realize that for me personally, George Floyd was not my first interaction with the death of a black man, right? Mm -hmm. You know, growing up in Brooklyn, like I saw the shot, I saw Sean Bell, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I yeah. experienced Amadou Diallo, yeah. I saw Eric Gardner, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was, that was, that was my, that was my life, right? Yeah. Like that was like that, those were people that like were cousins to a homie, right? Like that was people that you see on the block. So like for me, while everyone was um, shocked by what had happened, for me, it felt so normal. And what I found to be very um, disheartening was that it took place 
like all the protests, all the fights, like everyone wanting to be an ally, people claiming to be woke, anti, you know, racist um, conversations, conversations about white fragility, like we had been having those for a long time. It was damn near disrespectful. (laughs) It's so disrespectful. And I think for me handling that in isolation, me having been living in Los Angeles in downtown LA, where a lot of this, like I could literally look out my balcony and Mm, see it. I was like, I feel so hurt that it's someone else's father had to go away in order for y'all to rise to an occasion when these are issues that have been manifesting in our culture and in our communities for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I took from that moment was that um, a lot of people don't realize the amount of pain that black and brown folks are going through on an everyday basis. and they got that little glimpse and it was as if everyone was now trying to help. And I told myself not to get too excited about the momentum I was seeing because I'm about longitudinal data and I'm mm-hmm. about not paying lip service. I want to see what happens in June of 2023. Like right. I want to see us three years removed from this and I want to see what progress looks like. And so what got everyone excited um, about like that time was that so much, you know, momentum happened. Like people that have been working on these kinds of, um, you know, issues were getting funding. They were getting press. They were getting visibility. Even us, you know, as an organization, we were getting grants for the work that we were doing from people that at one point in time didn't even want to have didn't even take conversations a with right. us, right? Ugh. Or saw our talent as like less than or the like the lowering of the bar. And I was like, you know what? At this time, I can choose to. Um, take advantage of the fact that like there is momentum and I know when we get these dollars what this money goes to and I see how it changes the trajectory of our students lives but trust and believe that like I'm never going to um, get excited about the things that you say you're going to do I'm always going to get excited about the things that you actually do so let's circle back in three years to see what progress actually looks like Mm -hmm. and so I think that when you say stuff like that to people who are trying to help, they're kind of like, oh, this girl is tainted. And I'm just like, no, I'm honest, because what you saw in the glimpse of five minutes, I've literally been seeing for my entire 30 life. plus years. Yeah, <laughs> my entire so, life. My entire life. This was not an anomaly. Yeah. And it's interesting. Because, but welcome. But welcome. <laughs> welcome to America. <laughs> yeah. And another interesting thing is like a lot of people, um, you know, they were so interested in having leaders of color perform during this time. So it was like, I'm going to give you this funding and you're going to go execute on these outcomes and you're going to go and like build the business that you always wanted. But like you never asked if we were okay. Mm. So it's like you're providing funding, you're providing platforms, you're providing press, you're providing media, you're doing all these things, but you never asked if we are okay. Because the answer is no. And the answer is no. And that is when I believe that people really are not ready to have the uncomfortable Mm -mm. conversation. 
I love that you said that because I remember 2020 being this, everyone's in the DMs, everyone's either trying to give you money or give you a, give you a platform to have this conversation. And like you said, no one is asking if you're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some hard conversations with some of my friends who decided to go onto their <laughs> Instagram and say, oh, you should follow black people like Sherelle and da, 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 da. And I'm like, I literally passed by you three or four times in the co-working space and you never said one word to me, like Mm -hmm. we not friends. Mm -hmm. And the harshness to continuously not be seen as a human being with feelings or family, um, you know, we now use this this concept of post George Floyd Mm -hmm. as though George Floyd was not a human being who had a family, Mm -hmm. who had a daughter, who died, who did not deserve to die or need to die Mm -hmm. in the circumstances in which he was in and there was also for me a lot of the guilt mm-hmm. of because this man was murdered mm-hmm. and we were able to witness it mm-hmm. we all got a chance to profit from it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we got the funding that mm-hmm. was missing mm-hmm. we got the deals mm-hmm. that were missing and no we're not okay like I got to the point where I was yelling at people. Like I, I would be having conversations with people and I'm yelling. I was like, okay, you've got to pull this back. But like, I was pissed. I was so angry. Mm-hmm. Like all of 2020, I was like, I am, I am exhausted from this conversation. Yeah. And there wasn't enough candle burning and long walks mm-hmm. and hot baths that could absolve those things. Absolutely. How did you continue to like, and and I don't even want to say push through because I feel like that's always the story, right? Like Mm -hmm, you got to push through. You just got to overcome. You got to sing the songs Mm -hmm. and, you know, and march in the streets. And like that has not saved us from some of these tragic statistics. Mm -hmm. But how did you, as a leader, as someone who still had to show up, who had to serve these families, like, how did you still find some level of light when you knew that you weren't okay, but you still had to stay on mission? For sure. Um, I think uh, the first thing I needed to do was, uh, well, the first thing that I did was ask myself, like, what is your role in this movement? Mm. Um, because I've always saw my role and contribution to this movement um, about upskilling and training and workforce development. But it's so much more beyond that. And I didn't realize that until I sat myself down Mm. in a room in downtown LA and was like, what is your contribution to this movement? So if you don't want to go to the protest and you don't want to um, like start yelling at people, right? And you don't want- Which was actually pretty cathartic. (laughs) <laughs> like for me, I was like, I didn't want to yell. I just, I wanted to be left alone, to be honest with you. I wanted to be left alone. And in that conversation, I was like, what is your contribution? And I was like, your contribution to the movement, Jessica, is first investing in yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's rest as resistance. Um, and realizing that throughout the last like seven years, cause we were seven years old um, in 2020, over the last seven years, you've not taken a break. Mm. Like you've been going, going, going and pushing through resilience and getting excited when people use words like hardworking and um, you know, uh, just, just words that were very anti um, this idea that I had about what I wanted my, what I believe my ancestors wanted for me. 
And so it was like, the first thing is rest is resistance is the thing that I'm going to contribute to this movement and model what self-care looks like and model what it looks like to both care about your community, but also prioritize yourself in the process. Because so many of our big homies or our role models, like they literally left us with so much and left themselves with nothing. Mm. And I wanted, I didn't want that. Um, I think the second thing um, that I did was that I decided that AOT won't take money from certain people. So there were lots of uh, grants that were coming our way, but they were tied to us doing a certain kind of project or producing a certain kind of outcome. And I was like, nah. Like, we're not going to operate from a scarcity mindset. Like, this this funding is nice, but this project is not in alignment with what I believe our communities want based on the things they are telling us they need. Right. So rather than right. spoon-feeding them an agenda of what other people want to see, like, we're only going to accept dollars for the things that they want to see that people feel aligned with supporting. Um, and then the other thing was making sure that I had real open and honest conversations with our supporters around you're never going to get from me the politically correct answer. You are going to have to start being uncomfortable when I show up to the meeting and ask big questions about why you're doing something that I believe is harmful. Um, And I'm telling you right now, we've been in positions where people are like, all right, she's a little crazy, a little radical. <laughs> that book will come out real quick. <laughs> but I got to a point where I was just like, I need to honor that yeah. I'm in service to people. And for those that are uh, gatekeeping resources and for mm. those that are centralizing power within themselves and not distributing it to our communities, then I'm going to call them out on it. And I'm not going to say sorry about it. I used to feel very uncomfortable doing that. Um, but I realized that the uncomfortability didn't come from a place of um, not wanting to do it. It came from a place of wanting to make sure that my message was being sent and and um, being received. And now I care less about the message being received and more about the fact that I actually committed to doing it regardless of what the outcome was. Mm. I love that. So as we wrap up, um, I always like to ask every guest about what your definition of reinvention is and you know, I, I think as, you know, listeners and viewers really get to know more of you and more of your your story and just even the ethos and how you move, right? I love that you say, you'll walk into a room and you're not going to be politically correct. Like mm-hmm. you are charging that other person with accountability of mm-hmm. why are you doing something that has the potential to be harmful and then expect me to dance and sing in order to be aligned with you when clearly we are not aligned at all. Mm-hmm. And that is hard. Mm -hmm. That's hard when you're afraid of losing that six figure job. It's Mm -hmm. hard when you feel like so much of the things that my family needs are on my shoulders Mm -hmm. and all of these things that could be at risk Mm -hmm. if I were to be honest and Mm -hmm. to be real. Um, So maybe you have some advice in this definition of reinvention and I think boldly resisting Mm -hmm. rest boldly resisting and not taking every dollar. Mm -hmm. Like how does that, how do we get to that place? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I think for me, reinvention is the process, the system, the tools, and the resources that are at your disposal to always make sure that your heart and your mind and your purpose are aligned. Mm. And the steps that you take to ensure that in the moments where it is not aligned, the things that were at your disposal, you use to make sure there was an alignment. Just as always, thank you thank for joining you. me. This is incredible. I appreciate you so I much. I appreciate you too. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Road to Reinvention. If you find yourself moved or feeling free after tuning in, make sure to leave a review on your favorite listening platform and share this with someone you know who may be navigating a similar journey. You do not have to do this alone. To hang out with me more, head over to join our Fluency newsletter at shereldorsey.com. Until next episode, may you embrace your need to recreate, revitalize, and reinvent yourself over and over.